The Poor People campaign is about helping to lift up working people, working class, poor people. And it is about putting labor, workers, front and center. We have to say this is a worker right, and we have to defend it. The same way that we defend the rights of workers to organize. Everything is about, comes back into this third world, first world, north, south binary. And I, I, I find that, and that's the way in which global reform has been packaged and decentralized. We were a bunch of troublemakers. In one class, the teacher referred to us as the peanut gallery. Seasoned teachers would see us in the back and insist we move to the front of the class. And that was a smart idea. It was a way to take back control. I think the Pakistani in me grew up with poetry being recited and sung. It longs for that in America and hopes that maybe one day we're going to have that situation. You're listening to the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. On today's show, Roz Pallas and David Mott preview the June 18th March on Washington on the Your Rights at Work radio show. The El Desvio podcast explores what the current attack on women's health means for women in the workforce. On the Workplace Matters podcast, anthropologist Dina Matna Siddiqui explains that the way we look at global labor inequality is backwards. Then, from the Million Dollar Organizer podcast, the hierarchy of seating in the boardroom and in the classroom. We wrap up this week with poet Asnia Asim exploring the differences in the consumption of art in the United States and her home country of Pakistan. That's from the Empathy Media Lab podcast. As always, you can find all these shows and, of course, the rest of the 150 shows in the Labor Radio Podcast Network at laborradionetwork.org. I'm Chris Garlock, and this is the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Here's the show. This is a public service announcement with guitar. It's the time to give us a call, 202-588-0893. Mike DeMann will get you on the air. We are a proud founding member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. That's nearly 150 labor radio and podcast shows just like this. You can check them all out, laborradionetwork.com. Coming up June 18th, the Mass Poor People's and Low Wage Workers Assembly and Moral March on Washington and to the polls. Uh, Roz Pellis, she's the former director of the Office of Human Rights at the AFL-CIO. She's now strategic advisor to the Poor People's Campaign and vice president of the Repairers of the Breach. David Mott, recently retired, organizing coordinator with the Service Employees International Union, SEIU, and he now spends time 
uh, as so many of our labor folks, they never really retire, but he's now volunteering with the Maryland Poor People's Campaign. Roz and David, welcome to your rights at work. Glad to be here. It's Feeling here. right at home. Hello. <laughs> nice to be here. Thank you. It's great to have you both. Now, my first question, that is a really long name for what's for what's essentially, you know, a march and a rally, but it really it really comes as I understand it from the Moral Mondays, which is blessedly short, right? Uh, but doesn't it Russ, doesn't it come from the Moral Mondays uh, movement originally? So, so the 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 poor people's campaign our work is is based a lot on the Moral Mondays movement that grew out of North Carolina. Uh, that was quite powerful. So it comes out of that tradition, and uh, it is a long name, and that and, and that's intentional as it really wants to to lift up the the plight of poor people in this country. And nobody says the word poor in this country. That's right. Lift up that name, and also the plight of low wage workers in this country who are often forgotten, but who are organizing, as you say, uh, all over this country. So it really is. Um, a matter of lifting those up, and I agree, it is a long name. Well, but it co- it's covering a lot of bases, and, and it really, you know, those are all bases that need to be covered. Now, David, a, a number uh, of unions uh, led, and I've been getting a bunch of emails from them over the last couple of days by the National AFL-CIO, uh, have signed on, and I wondered what you could tell me about Labor's involvement in, in the rally. Well, there certainly is going to be turnout from from labor, and you know, um, you know, for for my part, very small part, really, here in Maryland, trying to get a hold of folks here in Maryland to turn folks out, both through the AFL CIO, both in Northern Virginia, he, uh, the DC Metro Council, and AFL CIO here in Maryland. Um, but you know, it really is, and uh, what I've been trying to say to people is, it's just very, very crucial. You know, you look at what's happening to workers in this country. And working class is getting hammered. And you just mentioned the CEO pay is up. You know, billionaires uh, all across the country have made over a trillion dollars in new wealth during the pandemic, while workers are losing their jobs, losing their homes and losing their minds. Right. And, you know, so and really, when you boil it down, this is what I would say to the labor movement. This is about building power. That is what the poor people's campaign says. We are about building power. Or about changing the narrative in this country where greed is good and trickle down works. It doesn't, right? And so really when you think about building power, if you're in the labor movement now, and I was, I negotiated contracts, led strikes, uh, organized workers, it is harder and harder and harder to make progress, uh, uh, even with a union. And because we are operating in an environment which is anti-worker, anti-union, right? And so the Poor People's Campaign is about helping to lift up working people, working class, poor people. And it is about putting labor, workers, front and center. So I just would urge every single labor leader, late union member and working person out there, if you're sick and tired being sick and tired, get down, get in the middle of this fight, because this is the fight you've been waiting for. That's Oz Palace and David Mott, thanks so much for being on the show. Folks, you can find out more about the June 18th, 10 a.m. on June 18th at poorpeoplescampaign.org or, as always, dclabor.org. Click on calendar. Thank you so much, Roz and David. Thank you. Thank you. This is a public service announcement. 
In this video, Many Roads, One Destination presents listeners with 30 minutes of thought-provoking discussions on the relevant issues we face as a community. Welcome back, me and over the last couple of years, we have witnessed a deliberate erosion of our freedoms. And now it's clear that women's health and access to appropriate health choices are in question. I'll start with Yanira Merino, president of the Labor Council for Latin American Advancement and the National Immigration Coordinator at LAYUNA. And Cristina Barrias, LACLA's National Chapter Development and Field Coordinator and proud member from the UAE. Hola, Yanira. Gracias, Cristina. Hola. Do you see this issue as a continued erosion of workers' rights? We have a workforce in this country that is coming to be always a minority of women. It is a continuation of an attack on workers' rights. We cannot talk about workers' rights without having to talk about the other side of the coin, which is the economic. How do these laws affect directly the economic of workers? This case is specifically a women. Yes, I'm glad that you brought up the economics of it because it is, I believe, a strong part of this whole issue. Definitely, there's different studies that fight for the legal reproductive rights and health services have been part of the women movement. The majority of those women are workers because we know what it really to have access to healthcare. As women, we know that because we need to be able to take care of our bodies in order to be more productive, in order to continue going to work every day. But it doesn't stop there because if we don't have the ability to determine what to do and when to become parent, that affects us. So woman rights. Yes, it is a human right, but it's also worker right, because those are one and the same. Usted no puede decir trabajadores, derechos humanos, y puede decir derechos de trabajadores sin pensar que son todo lo que no es cierto. Entonces, ¿cómo seguimos hacia adelante? How do we move forward? First, once again, we have to say this is a worker right, and we have to defend it. The same way that we defend the rights of workers to organize, the rights of workers collective bargaining agreement. We have to defend the why. Because, Christina, if we don't defend this right now under this attack, what's coming next? The eight hours? It's coming next that an employer will be able to tell you when you go to the bathroom, have any time. And lastly, just because we were part of a gender, we're not going to be allowed to have a voice in our workplace. Anita, what would you say to our brothers, our male counterparts, that may not necessarily think this affects them? I'm going to say that there's a couple of sayings who say is an injured to one is an injured to all. And we have to teach ourselves to be as workers. In the fight for immigrant rights, we try to do the same thing. Yes, it's specific issues, it's immigrant rights. But at the end of the day, it's the ability to work freely without being afraid that in the status puts you in a position to be more exploited. So the same position with women. That's why I will keep repeating, this is a worker right. Thank you for listening to El Desvio, Many Roads, One Destination. Our podcast explores the many ways that we activists and trade unionists try to get to the destination of social and economic justice. LACLA's El Desvio podcast is a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, the voice of working people. To learn more about issues that affect workers, visit laborradionetwork.org. This podcast was made possible by the support of the AFL-CIO and the CIPODEMOS Fund, LACLA's national C4 organization. Welcome. 
This is Workplace Matters, a podcast brought to you by the European Labour History Network Working Group. Workplaces, pasts and presents. Hello and welcome to uh, Workplace Matters. We are very delighted to have Professor Dina Mena Siddiqui among us an eminent anthropologist from the Faculty of Liberal Studies, New York University. In her vast ethnographic research over more than 30 years, Professor Siddiqui focuses on Bangladesh and critically engages with concepts and practices of development studies, with transnational feminist theories, and with the anthropology of Islam and of human rights. And I think we delve into the set of questions. Um, For you, Dina, you have been very uh, very vocal in, in, in arguing that these factories have to be seen as not local manifestations of capital, but that these entanglements, um, transnational spaces from the start, so to say. And um, whether you could could flesh that out a bit, um, the, the relevance of transnationalism global capital in the Bangladesh government industry. So methodological nationalism is something that I'm uh, surprised keeps getting reinscribed into the study of the Bangladeshi garment industry. And I think we need to be very wary of falling back on this idea of the national economy as a bounded unit. Um, it's very, and, and it's a difficult thing to do, particularly because all the measurements that we have are on the basis of a national economy. And I think we do really do need to demystify that. And I'm especially inspired here by the work of Hannah Apple, who shows in The Anthropologist, who shows in the context of some country she's studying, I think, in Africa, but about how experts' documents, how experts and their documents and their numbers and their policies actively produce this idea of a bounded national unit in which things happen, right? Um, Why is it important to unpack that because as the pandemic made very clear the Bangladesh industry is not just the Bangladesh industry is deeply interconnected within the supply chain without the supply chain there is no industry right so that the problem of governance you know I I really I have been um otherwise we end up reproducing these very tired dangerous binaries and narratives of lag and backwardness, as you, you know, in the thing that you were talking about in the piece, it all becomes about Bangladeshi, you know, Bangladesh needing to be fixed, not capitalist inequalities, right? It's Bangladeshi inefficiency. The government is inefficient. The capitalists in Bangladesh are greedy, right? And the workers are just don't know any better and need a lot of training. They need to know about the law. Gosh, why would workers know about their rights, right? So everything is about comes back into this third world, first world, north, south binary. And I, I, I find that, and that's the way in which global reform has been packaged or, and conceptualized. So the accord which, you know, this accord that people in the U.S. love, that most people in Bangladesh are very wary of if they've heard about it, this accord is meant to only look at governance inside Bangladesh. And I don't understand it. What David Harvey calls the spatial fix is if if Bangladesh is going to be fixed in a particular way, meaning just raising the wages in Bangladesh, well, the capital will go elsewhere. So capitalists put Bangladeshis 
owners in a fix so that capitalists have been able to, as Mark Anner's work has shown, Bangladeshi factories, factory owners are being paid less and less, especially since after 2013, after Rana Plaza, for making the same trousers that they made 10 years ago. Their selling price is going down and they're passing that on to the workers. That's the problem I want to talk about. I don't want to talk about how bad and greedy Rana Plaza, Mr. Sohil Rana is. Of course he is, he's a capitalist. What's the surprise in that? Our task as scholars and activists is to really push back against this narrative. And it's really hard to do. I understand because it's such a liberal, feel-good narrative. It's so invested in, you know, World Bank statistics, UNICEF statistics. It's all about so many women under the age of 18 are in the, you know, factories, so many women over, you know, the ages, all of our statistics, all of our rankings, all of our measurements, conceptual measurements are around the idea of the national economy or what Hannah Appel calls the national economy form, which has to be produced. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you too. It's the Million Dollar Organizer Show. Tips for professional union organizers. Win more campaigns, balance work and family, and leave the competition in the dust. Now here's your host, Bob Odie. Hello, union organizers and future union organizers. This is podcast episode number 58. Today's topic, seating matters. Have you ever taken into consideration where you sit in a meeting? Let's consider a boardroom environment, for example. It turns out there is a hierarchy. These positions, whether we realize it or not, are well established. We need to be aware of this fact. The host or leader is at the head of the table. Here they can be seen and control the ebb and flow of the gathering. The opposite side is where a guest or a presenter might sit. This isn't a given. If invited, we should wait to be directed. The same when invited over to someone's house for dinner, for example. Ask the host or wait to be told where to sit. It wouldn't be proper to just grab a seat at the head of the table. Back to the boardroom. Corner seats are considered flanking positions. The one to the leader's right is usually reserved for second-in-command. We've all heard the saying, my right-hand man, or I'd give my right arm for a fill-in-the-blank, or I was downright mad. Have you ever heard someone say, I was down-left mad? Of course not. The seat to the left is for a rising star. Someone who's making progress and it shows. Like second-in-command, this person is a trusted supporter. We often refer to someone as close. We were really close. Here's something to consider. Could we be really close with someone who always kept their distance? Probably not. There's a certain familiarity with people who are near and dear to us. The two positions give these individuals an opportunity to show approval and help control the flow and direction of meetings. Similarly, the flanking positions at the other end of the table offer opportunities. Here we can assist the leader by drawing attention to or from an agenda item or topic. The middle seats are less visible to the leader, therefore are considered lesser positions. It's a good place to be if we're unfamiliar with a topic or don't wish to be called on. Now let's move from the boardroom to the classroom. In this configuration, the instructor stands at the front of the class. Did you like school growing up? I hated it. I was one of those students who would sit in the back of the class. I didn't want the teacher to call on me. 
In the back, we could make condescending remarks under our breath. We were far enough away from the teacher's glare to spread dissension. The other students back there were probably like me. It was almost like a little club, and we drove teachers nuts. Come to think of it, we were a bunch of troublemakers. In one class, the teacher referred to us as the peanut gallery. Seasoned teachers would see us in the back and insist we move to the front of the class, and that was a smart idea. It was a way to take back control. There we were, right under the teacher's glare. I was thinking about this hierarchy at a meeting. This was more like a classroom-type setting, not a boardroom. After giving a presentation, there was notable dissension coming from the rear of the room, and I wasn't expecting such resistance. After all, they invited me. It got me thinking. Could I have done anything in advance to lessen or prevent such a reaction? Then it dawned on me. I could have insisted everyone in the back come up to the front. I could have used an excuse such as, my voice, or, you'll be able to see the screen better, or, I'm going to need the back row empty. It was up to me to control the room. Keep these things in mind as you navigate the hierarchy of meetings. Seating matters. Thanks for listening. We hope that you'll subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Give us a five-star review and let us know what you'd like to hear the Million Dollar Organizer talk about. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Union Organizer. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. Welcome to the Artist Profile Series, where we explore ideas that shape our world. My name is Evan Papp, and I'm the executive producer for Empathy Media Lab that publishes content on labor, political economy, art, and culture, and we're a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Today, I'm speaking with Asnia Asim, who is a poet and writer. We will be discussing a recently published book of poems titled Quarantine with Rilke, which conjures a language of intimacy with the self, a luminous relationship between the divine and the everyday. Asnia, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. So moving to the question of artist in society and a poet in society and a poet in society in these days of turbulence and cataclysm, how do you see yourself as an artist in these turbulent times? That's a good question or maybe a really tough question because I think that I, I, I sway back and forth between what it means to be an artist person to me personally in like the very at a very subjective level and then what it means to be an artist at the macro level and i think it's this constant fluctuation and this dialogue that all humans struggle with i think not just artists i also struggle with being a pakistani muslim woman in America writing in English and I struggle with fears of our anxiety about being pigeonholed as a Pakistani Muslim woman writing about Muslim things and I think that it's a tough balance because one wants to write about their subjective experience but then at the same time one wants to be acknowledged as a universal being like off the universe and so I think it's a journey and I, I struggle with it. I, I sometimes think that I only want to write like existential poetry, like Quarantine with Rilke. And it was, a, I was very glad when it got picked up because I felt like a lot of the times, and I wonder if this is the experience of 
a lot of people who are called diverse, the diverse people. Like I felt like poems that I've wrote about being Muslim or being from Pakistan or politics, Islamophobia, I felt like those got picked quickly or got more, were received more, or, or maybe I just wrote more of those. And so then Quarantine with Rilke was my attempt to claim the universal part of being human. So I think it's a very cool topic to think about. And I don't think I have an answer. I don't, you know, I think this is a big part of the journey, perhaps coming to some kind of an answer. And I don't think I'm there yet. Well, to take yourself out of the equation then, and even looking at the art as a form of expression and as a form of receiving and actually engaging that art as an audience. I, I think that art has this ability to really shift people's consciousness. And I've, I've seen it with myself personally, and I've also seen it amongst other people. And I, I was just, in some ways, like getting into this conversation, will art change the world or something like that can be sometimes a little bit over the top. But I, I just want to ask to see if you had any comment on that aspect of art in these times. I'm obviously biased because I feel like art, you know, is my life and it saves me. Right. So I agree with you. I think that, and I'm not like an expert on the subject and I don't know the different forms in which art is. Art exists in capital, in a capitalist society, but I do think that there's something off about how art is consumed in, in, I feel in America coming from Pakistan and being married to a Lebanese and spending considerable amount of time in Lebanon, I can see how there are cultures and I've, I'm a part of those cultures where music and poetry is a, is, is a right of the public almost. Like it is their domain and they own it and they celebrate it and they know verses by heart and then it's, it's accessible, but not just, it's not just accessible. It's a part of who they are. If you compare that scenario to poetry in America right now, I, I do feel a bit as if it's remote, like it's very remote. And maybe like amazing musicians and singers have taken up that role. And But I'm not sure if, if, if they have taken up that role. I cannot say because there is a lot of robust poetry being written. So then this is a complicated question. Is it because of the capitalist society? Is it because poetry has become too academic and only certain people have access to academic writing and facilities? Or is it because the American public has lost touch with poetry the way, let's say, the Pakistani public or the Lebanese public still feel connected with it? I don't know. And... While I revel in the forums of poetry in America, like I do love the free verse and the freedom and the, like the connoisseurs of language and rhyme and that. I think the Pakistani in me who grew up with poetry being recited and sung, it longs for that in America and hopes that maybe one day, like we're going to have that situation, although I, I doubt it. Not in my lifetime. Thank you so much for your time. No, thank you so much for having me. This was delightful. I really enjoyed this.
And uh, yeah, good luck to you with everything. That's it for this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, our roundup of highlights from just a few of the nearly 150 labor radio shows and podcasts that make up the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Remember, we've got links to the shows you heard today and the show notes for the podcast. You'll find all the network shows at laborradionetwork.org. And you can also find them, use the hashtag laborradiopod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly was edited this week by Mel Smith and Patrick Dixon. I produce the show, and our social media guru, as always, is Mr. Harold Phillips. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Labor Radio Net. You can find out more on our website, laborradionetwork.org. For Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this has been Chris Garlock. Stay active and stay tuned to your local Labor Radio Podcast show.